1: The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Hello and welcome to The Drinking Hour here on Food FM with me, David Kermode. And we're up to episode 36, incredibly, which means it's now the end of our third series. So for this edition, We've curated a collection of our best bits, the highlights of series three. We'll talk to The Telegraph's renowned wine critic, Victoria Moore, about her latest book. The president of the Dio Carver, Javier Pages, will tell us about the changes he's overseen to the rules governing the meds' distinctive sparkling wine. Celebrated as the godfather of Spanish cuisine in the UK, Jose Pizarro will tell us why he made London his home. Amanda Barnes will extol the virtues of South America's wines, the subject of her new book. Plus, Greg Sherwood, M.W., on the wines of South Africa. And all you need to know about vermouth, we'll hear from Roberto Bava of the legendary Cocky. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. Our first highlight comes from an interview with Victoria Moore, the high profile wine editor of the Daily Telegraph and author of the new book, Fried Eggs and Rioja, devoted to the perfect pairings for food and wine. And Victoria, as we heard, is absolutely obsessed with smell.
2: I do spend an embarrassing amount of time Googling the latest research on smell and taste. And I think if it's becoming a lot more accessible. And if people are interested, there are places that they can go to to find out and read more. Two of the best ones are mediated by two charities, Fifth Sense and Absent, both of which um, are set up to help people who've lost their sense of smell. And they host seminars. They they print kind of 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 the latest research and and just generally act as forums where people can discuss the, the advances in smell science. Well,
1: that's great those uh, organisations exist, because uh, I was an early adopter of COVID-19, I'm afraid to say. I I got it, uh, uh, along with uh, various members of the wine trade, I think at the Washington State Tasting in March 2020. And I spent 10 days with anosmia, um, not at the time really knowing what that was, because it was not listed as a a symptom at that point. And it's really, as you can imagine, really terrifying, actually.
2: I was just going to say you were probably quite lucky, because you probably didn't have the fear that people had later when they thought it might not come back but you did were you worried it would stay away for a long time
1: well no you're absolutely right i I was less worried because i didn't know it existed so therefore i just assumed it was a temporary phenomenon and because people weren't really talking about it at the time um then by the time i really discovered what it was uh, my sense of of smell and taste had fortunately come back so I, i was very fortunate actually yes
2: I remember once interviewing the nose for Chanel or the former nose for Chanel, a guy called Jacques Polge. And he had just suffered from post-viral smell loss, which as you can imagine, had sent him around to every private doctor in Paris, practically. Um, desperately in search of a solution. But, you know, like you, his had then come back within a couple of weeks. But I interviewed him shortly afterwards, and he was still a little bit shell-shocked about it. But I I think it's a very uncomfortable experience. But I'd be interested to know, how did you notice you'd lost your sense of smell? Do you feel that you noticed the minute it went? Or do you think you, yeah...
1: I, I actually I opened, um, I, I started to feel a little bit better so I opened a wine that I very much enjoyed usually uh, because um, I felt sufficiently well enough and I hadn't had a drink for, you know, whatever it was, a week. Uh, I thought oh, I go have that, that would be a real treat, it's Friday night and I couldn't taste a thing.
2: And, and when you thought back did you think, oh actually I've been feeling a little bit cut off?
1: Yes, but it was only when I mentioned it to a friend of mine, um, because at that point I was back out again, I wasn't contagious and I was well enough, and I I was chatting to a friend of mine who said, oh, I read a research piece in something like uh, The New Scientist or something about that. And that's when I I realised that that... Uh, was clearly a symptom and it was another six or eight weeks before the government listed it as an official symptom so yeah it was a a, a remarkable thing and that's why this is so interesting because um, when you're not armed with smell and taste um, it's, uh, it's horrific actually
2: I can imagine, but people people suffer from depression because of it, and they routinely talk about feeling disengaged from life, feeling like they're behind a sheet of glass, cut off from their environment. It can upset relationships if you can't smell your partner or your children, Or apart from being difficult to manage, because we use our sense of smell all the time without realising that we are doing. I think that's why we don't value it enough, and I think it just can make people incredibly unhappy and stressed.
1: I, I, I now find myself able to empathise in a way that I, I, I couldn't before. Do, do you find yourself going around smelling really unusual things or even people?
2: I, I do sometimes catch myself sampling people as I walk down the street. Slightly embarrassingly, more than slightly embarrassingly. I, a friend once caught me doing it and she was like, did you just sample that person? I, yeah, I think I did. Um, <laughs> But I think because of COVID as well, I'm, I'm in a permanent state of checking that I can still smell things. There's, there's a theory that one of the reasons why we sometimes take a long time to notice that our sense of smell has disappeared is because it, it's, it, you inhale and you smell and you take in some air and some aroma particles and then you exhale and it goes out again. So it's this kind of on off on off sense, which makes it harder to tell when it's suddenly not there. So you you do have to keep checking. But no, I, I smell, but I, I think this I'm very dependent on my sense of smell for my mood. If I'm feeling stressed, I might wander, I live quite close to the Thames and I might wander down to the river and I just find that very sort of oceanic, that slightly muddy, slightly saline smell. For some reason, I just find it really relaxing. I, mm-hmm. I don't like it if my house smells wrong. I don't, you know, I, I notice if my child's ill, if she smells wrong. We used to call it at home, poorly smell. We weren't allowed off school unless we had what my mum called poorly smell. She would sort of sniff us to check that we weren't making things up. I, I feel as if my whole life is is lived through my sense of smell. I'm not a very musical person and I'm not very visual either. So it all comes from that.
1: Yeah, I'm similar in that I can come into the house sometimes and uh, my partner will be baffled as I go around going... <laughs> There's something that doesn't smell absolutely quite right. It's not wrong necessarily, but it's just different. It's, it's really, do you think that's because we work in wine or is it just the way we're built?
2: I think we work in wine because we're like that. Or At least in my case, it, it wouldn't have worked for me, wine, if I hadn't had that great big attention to the sense of smell. Because it, I definitely came to wine through smell rather than to smell through wine. And I think some people perhaps are the other way around. But just just noticing how much people use their sense of smell, it just never stops surprising me so i remember and using it in a very everyday context but it's a kind of superpower isn't it it does amazing things Mm. it tells us such a lot about people so a few weeks ago i walked outside my front door and said hello to the a lady who lives down the street and completely freaked her out because actually she was behind the hedge and i couldn't see her but i hadn't noticed i couldn't see her because i could smell her perfume and i knew she was there i once picked my daughter up from nursery and said oh she's she's not got the rot." Right cardigan, this isn't hers. And it was unusual because none of her clothes had a name tape in. Nobody bothered with that at nursery. But she never ever ever came home with the wrong clothes. And her teacher took the cardigan off her and just instinctively put it to her face and went, Oh no, you're right, that's Charlotte's. And I looked at her and I said, Is that is that what you do for all the children in your class? Is that how they have the right cardigans? And she just kind of thought about it and she said, Yes. It is. I thought it was an amazing example of the sense of smell being used without, she hadn't stopped to consider it. She wasn't conscious of what she was doing, but she was, she was there sniffing, sniffing the clothes and giving them to the right person. For fantastic. Uh, Much uh, easier than sewing in name tapes, huh?
1: Yeah, I'll say. Yeah, you, you're right. It's a superpower. I love this idea of smell man or wafter woman, you know, as a sort of superheroes. But um you um you you could um have gone down the route of doing the master of wine with your you know knowledge experience, and your uh, very acute uh, olfactory uh, skills. Um, instead, you went for a a different kind of master, a master's in psychology. Why did you do that?
2: I didn't think that the master of wine would make me very happy, and I've always been interested in wine. And from the perspective of the person who's drinking it and what's going on in their head and what's going on for them when they open a bottle of wine. And I thought that psychology would play into my interests much more interested in the choices people make, how their perception works, all of these things. So I should fess up and say I didn't actually finish the psychology master's. I did three out of four years of the course and I ended up with a diploma because I became pregnant at the end of the third year and as you know as a freelancer I had zero maternity leave coming my way I had a book to write in that year and I was going to have a baby and I thought you know what I think holding down a full-time job and writing a book and having a baby with no maternity leave and finishing this master's might be a bit more than I can manage. So I cashed out with a diploma, but it was it was such a fascinating course and I learnt so much about how our sensors work that, that made it easier for me then to keep pursuing this interest in smell and taste.
1: Yeah, well, thank goodness you did. And uh, just finally, there's a really, there's a note uh, in your, I think it's in the introduction to fried eggs and marioca that really made me laugh. Uh, you, you basically pair, you pair a wine with the smell of something cooking, even though you won't necessarily pair the wine with the dish once it's cooked.
2: That seems completely normal to me, you see. Um, and I think, I think that you're probably talking about New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc and Thai green curry you are because it never quite works with the food because of the chili in the dish but somehow that brightness and the luminosity of the Sauvignon Blanc is just so lovely with the smell of the ingredients the lemongrass being chopped and the, the the coconut milk they're just really beautiful together and actually I tend to drink more as an aperitif almost than I do with the food which might sound odd given I've written a food and wine matching book but it's it's the it's the setup isn't it it's the bit where you're just nibbling and you're having a bit of this and a bit of that and you can smell the food and you're probably paying more attention to the wine at that point than at any other point in the evening as well
1: that moment of recreation isn't it because you're if you enjoy cooking uh, you've you've done your work and it's like ah oh, at that point uh, and the two things go together i guess
2: it's exactly that it's exactly that you're right
1: Victoria Moore, the wine editor of the Daily Telegraph and author of Fried Eggs and Rioca, and she's a full-time smellaholic as well, as you could tell. Next it's to Carver, the Mediterranean's distinctive traditional method sparkling wine. Earlier this year, its regulatory body, the DO Carver, announced some sweeping changes to the rules governing the wines, including a new category, Carver Garda Superior and a commitment to exclusively organic methods of production for the top categories of kava by 2025. And he told me why.
3: Well, we, we made the changes because Cava uh, uh, has been very successful. It's, it's uh, the reality is uh, uh, we should be very, very proud with Kava, you know, what he has achieved in a short period, if we can call it short, but uh, a period of time. And uh, you can find bottles all around the world, but Kava keeps it uh, needs to be moving, and uh, consumers uh, care about uh, what you were asking me before. You know, uh, as Cava has one territory, has more territories. Uh, do consumers, do we consumers know where the cre- grapes come from? Is the same thing a Kava that has blended uh, grapes from all the different territories, that one that has a specific territory? So, all these things. are are things that we know that consumers more and more care about the origin, the traceability of the wine, and that's something we can now give them, you know. Uh, And that's one of the major changes, putting origins to our Cava, allowing our winemakers to distinguish their wines, uh, the sparkling wines, the profiles linked to the origin, you know. And that, in fact, what you do is also you bring the vineyards to the front, you bring the, 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 the land to the front, because now we'll be able to attach the vineyards, the grapes to the to the wood, to the wine consumed. So that was an important step. The second step is we have also added uh, more hierarchy to Cava. Uh, we already had some hierarchy because we have Cava's. That was one uh, step. You had Cava's Reserva. You had Cava's Gran Reserva. And then you had cavas de paraje so uh, you had these uh, different cavas. but what we have done is we have made a sort of uh, uh, kept the cavas as as they are now they are called cava de guarda and the name guarda has been added because maybe not in all the languages it will be uh, easily understood but within time we believe it will Guarda means that that cava has been aged at least for nine months in the bottle. And that's already a big step. You're not talking about, as I was saying before, a sparkling wine that's been produced, uh, fermented in a tank or in a different way in a short period of time and has not been left in the bottle aging. So this one has been aging. So it's a Cava de Guarda, And then we have the Guarda Superior. And here we have more uh, specific normative like all those cava's, the guarda superior, and that's starting with reserva and, and above, they all need to have lower yields. Uh, the, uh, the yields in this regard, I'm talking about the vineyards. The vineyards have uh, grapes, and uh, each vineyard may have different yields. So, here, what you do is you put a top to the yields for those cabas, the, the guarda superior, because uh, that make them, you know, uh, uh, more concentrated uh, aromas and, 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 uh, and cavas. We also, what we do is, they need to be sustainable, it's an important part of what the DO is going and moving, because we know that consumers care about sustainability too, so they are ecological, they need to be ecological vineyards, they need to be vintage cavas, and there are a few other small things, you know, the normatives, that makes those cabas that can be considered regarded as guarda because they have been aging for a long period of time and superior because they have all these uh, uh, demanding uh, normative uh, attached to them.
1: And you are going completely organic at uh, superior level of uh, Cava de quadra, uh by 2025 I think uh, w- what's that all about what that's quite a demanding quite a bold move
3: well uh, it is but uh, I think uh, it's come a time that uh, you know we need to to do some uh, bold moves because you know there are many things that in our lives that we now care that we didn't care or we're so much aware as consumers a few years ago we heard about the the planet and its uh, uh, problems. How sometimes we we abuse, exploit. Uh, how, how you say, know, abuse the planet,
2: mm-hmm.
3: uh, and uh, and the ecological way is a gentle way uh, to produce uh, a vineyard, the vines and the grapes it's the most gentle way, and so we have gone organic. Uh, we cannot do yet it for the whole region uh, because. You, you need a transitional period. But yes, with Cava de Guarda Superior, all those uh, grapes that go into Cava de Guarda Superior will have to come from uh, uh, organic. And that's a big step, but I think it's a step, as I was saying before, that cares about our land, cares about our territory, cares about what we do, the, you know, method that we want to produce it with the most quality as possible. and And on top of this, I think consumers more and more are uh, starting to, to look into these uh, uh, things uh, and want to consume them.
1: One of the things that I most enjoy tasting uh, is uh, Brute Nature Carver. I think probably because you have the sunshine for, for ripe fruit, you get a lovely fruit intensity, which I, I, I'm guessing makes it perhaps easier if 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 easier is a word in, in terms of making sparkling wine because it's very difficult to make but you get uh, these brute nature styles that are really you know, beautiful for those who don't know what i'm talking about uh, this is a no dosage so so no no sugar added at the at that stage of the, the process is brute nature something that you're seeing growing as a category in kava
3: it is it really it, it's a growing category as you said before has no dosage, and the cava is uh, a, it's as pure as it can be, you know, and uh, and has captured the mind of many consumers, and um, it's very much extended already in uh, in Spain, uh, and outside slowly, uh, outside I mean internationally slowly, because people need yet to be explained about what nature is and it is, but uh, it's it's a style that's. Uh, growing a lot and it's very typical of kava because uh, one of the nice things that we have in our region is that uh, uh, we don't have uh, uh, our acidity uh, is not very very high and so you can have cava's uh, uh, with no dosage and uh, and yet they they are balanced and the Brune nature is one example of this.
1: Which brings us neatly on to food pairing because uh, I love being in Barcelona and going to those carver uh, bars where you get um, a, a whole menu of different carvers uh, uh, to, to choose from, and some absolutely fantastic food pairings. I mean, uh, I think Barcelona's food culture is is, is very well known and, and well understood. Carver uh, and gastronomy uh, pair together, you know, very well, don't they?
3: Um, it does. Cava uh, is. Uh... Uh, We call it, I don't know it in English. In Spanish it would be versatile. So in English I I guess it would be versatile. I'm not sure if that's a word. But certainly uh, yes, good. (laughs) Combines very well with food. Maybe because of the acidity I was talking before. Maybe because of its Mediterranean uh, taste and flavors. But it does very well with food. And uh, with all kind of foods um, it can be It can work with aperitif, but also with different cuisines. It works very well with tapas. In Spain, you know that people, and in Barcelona, we enjoy going out and then uh, sharing dishes. So we order small uh, different dishes and we share them, like sort of tapas, uh, at food as well. And then you can uh, taste very different combinations. And, And cava goes very well. Uh, with all that uh, clearly aperitives seafood rice which is is very very typical with us but then you can also go to Japanese cuisine uh, sushi sashimi but many other things that Japanese cuisine can bring to us Mexican cuisine Chinese all kind of cuisines and, uh, and, and I think that is one of the great uh, uh, moments uh, of, uh, you know, enjoying that food, and then at the same time with a glass of cava.
1: And do you have a favourite? I know you're not allowed to have a favourite cava because you represent them all, but um, (laughs) do you have a favourite food pairing with cava?
3: Well, uh, it's just because I'm a fan of, uh, on weekends, I love paellas and rice, you know? So, uh, because I love paellas and rice, uh, I cannot have a a paella without a cava. It would be like something would be missing to the paella, you know, like there are ingredients to the paella that needs to be there to make it a great arroz, you know, a great paella, different styles of paellas. I need a cava there. So yes, cava goes very well at that time. And also to me, when I, before before lunch uh, or a dinner, if I can have a glass of cava in my hand and slowly sipping that cava you know and and enjoying it it just puts me into a state of my mind is ready to enjoy the food the atmosphere my friends the company everything so i think that uh, yes those are great moments to me with cava
1: javier pages the president of the dio cava and here's another great name from spain Jose Pizarro has been described as the godfather of Spanish cuisine in the UK. He now has six restaurants including a real favourite of mine, his eponymous sherry and tapas bar Jose on Bermondsey Street in London. I spoke to him at the Copa Jerez, a sherry and fine dining competition in southern Spain down in the sherry triangle for which he was a judge and we chatted about how he came to love living in London and how his upbringing on a farm in Extremadura had influenced his cooking.
4: My mom, uh, she was wake up very early, helping my dad every single day uh, with the farm, with the milky cows. And uh, we have super amazing, great food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, but as you can imagine, working on a farm, helping my dad was not much time for me to teach me. Not just to teach me, to be in the middle, mommy, And I, mommy, for her, was that hour or two hours or whatever for herself to relax cooking for us. And I was a very naughty boy. Not a bad boy, but very naughty. And uh, she was like, please, go away. (laughs) Leave me to relax. And that is what happened. but maybe you don't be able to, um, to be in the kitchen, but you are able to, you know, to know the like we said before to know what the food coming from. You know how to mix a very good tomato with a very good olive oil, something simple like that. that you know, the smell of the olive oil, the smell of uh just a tomato from the vine, I think those things, you know, the smell of the churros in the morning, the smell of the stew is something that you have inside of you. You doesn't maybe see what is going on but is you are learning. is what we say before. It's important that the children know where the food is coming from. And that it, it happened and then I studied dentist technician and one day I well decided I was waiting for a job, finished my, my studies, waiting for a job in Seville and uh, I started doing some cookery course and twenty seven years after <laughs> you are and, and in London uh, enjoying what I do. It's uh, quite surprising that you almost became a dentist. Dentist technician, I am a dentist technician by studies. Right. Uh, No, I'm, you know, a little bit old fashioned now, I think, Um, yeah. When I, uh, I was doing that course, they sent me to, because you need to learn from the bottom, no, I was cleaning and I was in the restaurant and I saw you know what, I had to study because my dad told me, if you don't do something for yourself, you come into the farm. And I didn't want to go to the farm. You know, I saw my parents working really, really hard, and I didn't want that for myself. I do love it, but I didn't want that. And I saw to be sitting in a desk, looking to tooth, or be in a kitchen, seeing people, talking with people, uh, smell, that smell, that remind me, my mom doing... Uh, you know whatever she was doing that was absolutely changed my mind to i really don't want to be in a desk i love people i need to you know i grow with people i need that kind of uh, intimacy to say you know in the kitchen when we spend more time than with your partner really and uh, i'm happy i'm happy definitely i will never see a tooth again just mine (laughs) and uh, yeah, and I do enjoy what, what we're what is happening in London it's not easy, it's tough always been tough but you need to be positive and you need to, to keep going keep going Talking of keeping going
1: and talking of partners uh, I read an interview with your partner Peter <laughs> where he said that he is allowed to, to cook for you sometimes but that you generally can't help but interfere
4: <laughs> is a chef always on duty? <laughs> uh, you know, um, this time, then we spend more, more time together in the house. And definitely he's a very good baker. And uh, I leaving him to do the baking and he left me to do the cooking. He helped me, he cooks on time and he does very, very well indeed. But yeah, I think our roles are very clear in the kitchen. <laughs> he's the baker and the, the savoury, really. And we, we respect each other very well now.
1: <laughs> you mentioned the pandemic there. And of course, um, that has been, uh, I mean, it's still Going on, but it's uh, but you're you're back in business. You're back open again. Um,
4: how did you um, get through the pandemic? We closed in March, I think, and um, I I didn't want to to be at home crying, you know. I spoke with the team. I spoke with Peter, and we decided to try to do the best that we can, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, we did finish at home. We do uh, the website was uh, growing, and um, we yeah we we went through we went through uh, being tough, being very stressful because uh, the what you don't know is what you make you stressful, and you know to see what is happening with my family, what happened with my staff, what happened with my business, you know being being uh, in that time it was eight years with my business, and I thought oh, what is, what, what is going to happen and. Um, but was tough, but we went through uh, since, the pandem- since the pandemic is not over, but we are open now. I opened two more restaurants and, um, yeah, the team is really looking forward for more. You know, I think it's teaching us that we have to enjoy. It. Working hard because we have to, but we have to enjoy every single minute. Good advice. You have six restaurants mm-hmm. uh, now uh, in...
1: London in the South East. Tell us about the two most recent restaurants, Mm -hmm. because people may not be aware of those. uh, The Royal Academy.
4: Yeah, we, someone came to me and said, you know, um, we have this opportunity for you to open uh, and that you're going to two new places. I love art. I think um, the kitchen and the art and the museum is where I feel comfortable, where I, learning where are my feelings coming and uh, I was a yes even I didn't know how what is going to happen I said yeah I'm very happy to open something here uh, I, it's two different spaces one is uh, the poster bar mm. really small and uh, remind me with the poster no with the poster is uh, like the Spanish cafe here in Spain we have the bullfighting poster and in the Royal Academy we have the summer exhibition posters It's it's lovely, it's really, you know, full of light. And uh, sandwiches, coffees, cake, uh, of course, wine and sherry, very important Mm -hmm. and needed. And upstairs is a grand. It's like the Spanish casino. The Spanish casino doesn't mean the place that you go um, old-fashioned, not that you go and play only. Uh, It's a place that people uh, meet together, you know? And uh, it's huge, the ceiling, I don't know how many meters. It's just absolutely stunning, and we do there what we do uh, almost the same in another restaurant, just uh, represent representing uh, our philosophy of uh, quality, great food, uh, great wines, and that's it. Really, I'm very happy there. i very very happy, and uh, yeah, good reviews, touching it, and um, yeah, happy customer ah oh, can't wait to check it out um you've also
1: taken on the pub you have a pub in isha which um given that the pub
4: is that most british of <laughs> traditions that would surprise some people uh always i always say uh, pubs are like the spanish local bars is the place where locals go and meet you know in uh, in here well in spain we have the caña the little Little uh, beers in, and in the pubs, that you have the the pines. You know, we have that kind of, um, yeah, a place to enjoy and meet people, meet friends, and go with your family. I think it's quite related. We have tapas in my, in my pub, but we have a very amazing fish and chips. Scotch egg are absolutely stunning. And uh, yeah, in the beginning, the, the locals, because it's a very local pub, uh, they were looking to me say what this spanish guy is gonna do in my pub because they are their pub and um yeah very happy and uh, i feel uh i feel like i am my little local in, in the country and are you getting the locals in isha into sherry as well Oh yeah definitely <laughs> i it's very well um it's a lovely area where people do know already about good quality sherry. that was for me was quite easy to go there no yeah the surrey definitely is, uh, is important for me. Final question. What's your favourite British dish? Oof, um, it's So many, like we say, uh, we are. Um, look, I'm very proud of the, my scotch egg, you know, pies is a lot. But now we do uh, scotch egg and uh, uh, before was uh, with Iberico pork meat and I'm uh, Iberico and morcilla, black pudding. And was, you know, cut it, see the joke running out with the Spanish smell, was absolutely amazing. And now we do with the chorizo. And again, you know, when you just cut the scotch egg, you see the egg running and the aromas of pimentón, with the paprika coming out, I'm happy with that. You're making me hungry again. <laughs> Jose, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, my friend. Thank you very much for having me.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: Here's news of another Food FM programme you might love.
2: Thank you, David. I'm Jenny Linford from Food FM, and I'm exploring the world of cheese, from brie to parmesan and everything in between. So after enjoying The Drinking Hour, why not listen to my series, A Slice of Cheese? You can find it on your podcast platform and foodfmradio.com. Now back to David and The Drinking Hour.
0: The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world. Now, think of the wines of South America, and you probably think Argentina or Chile, maybe Uruguay. But what about Brazil, Bolivia or Peru? Amanda Barnes is an expert on the subject, and she's just launched a book, The Wines of South America, a proper reference tome. I spoke to her about the regions to have on your radar, and we spoke first about Chile and its treasure, Carmenere.
5: You do get two schools of Carmenere um, at the moment, and both of them can be premium. One is that slightly more peppery, floral, earlier harvested style, which I really like. I think it's quite fresh. It's quite Mm. zippy. You know, I love, I love pepper in a wine, you know, for me, I, you know, I crave some of those pyrazines and, and peppery notes because I think they add, you know, they add complexity, which can be absolutely delicious when you pair it with Mexican food or, you know, or something that has kind of that pepper or roasted quality in it. So there's that school, yeah. um, which is which is still very modern, like Pumanque, Santa Rita do an excellent example of that style. And then there's the other school, which is, you know, ripening it much more and going for that really kind of, you know, mellow, supple fruit. And, and rather than that pepper quality, you get this real kind of roasted quality um, and, you know, kind of sweeter spice, that kind of paprika, um, which is also equally as delicious. And those are much, those are often the more premium wines, typically they will fall into that school. But you can get them on both. And, and so Carmenere for me, I love drinking it. And uh, and I think, it, you know, now we're seeing quite a bit of diversity in different regions. And some winemakers, like Andrea Leon is one of my favourite um, winemakers, full stop. She's a great lady, <laughs> really good fun to, to talk to and drink with. And she's making terroir Carminier for La Postole. So she's got, you know, seven different plots different vineyards, different regions, which she makes Carmenère, And you can really see huge differences uh, between them. And she vinifies them all exactly the same in a very kind of simple minimum intervention way. And so it really marks the differences of regions. Um, and, you know, she's picking them at the same kind of ripeness. So, you know, Carmenère is something that we still need to explore a bit more as drinkers. And I think winemakers have really been exploring it a lot more in the in the last kind of decade or so now knowing that it's a totally different variety to merlot
1: yeah, and starting yeah. to
5: treat it um for its own kind of properties
1: well i would uh, heartily endorse uh, doing that it's been a revelation for me um, talking of revelations let's move to argentina now this is of course the land of malbec uh, to most <laughs> of us and i adore Altitude Malbec. Um, But I have to mention Cabernet Franc, because I think I adore um, Altitude Cabernet Franc from Argentina, from the Uco Valley. I think I love it even more.
5: Yeah, I'm all in with the Cabernet Franc um, growth. And it's a very new, it's a very, so Cabernet Franc did come over in the 1850s, but it wasn't very, uh, wasn't very planted um, in that period. And then it's only really since the kind of 2000s, That it's started to kind of be noticed uh, for its potential as a single variety rather than just kind of added into blends and uh, and it it gives you that really nice counterpart to Malbec you get you know again that slightly peppery note but also you get kind of nice floral notes and red fruit um, and you know nice acidity with a bit of tannin structure whereas Malbec has quite soft tannins so it's become a really awesome blending partner for Malbec But also really interesting as a single variety, and it's really kind of boomed. So going from you know barely I think there were less than seventy-five if I remember correctly hectares in in the nineties, and now there's well over one thousand two hundred. But what's great about Cabernet Franc in Argentina is that it's still limited, and so it's still very much used for the high-end, high-quality wines. It's that it claims the second highest export price after Malbec. So. Uh, you know, it really is up there in terms of premium wines. And you get some beautiful examples, but not just from the Yuko Valley. It was actually Luján de Cuyo where it, it kind of first took off. So there's some nice examples um, in Luján, which is also a high altitude region. And you've got some interesting ones being made in the south in Rio Negro as well now.
1: Hmm, okay, I will have to look those out because uh, as I say, it's, it's a current um, obsession. Um, you <laughs> are a huge fan of Uruguay. Uh, I love Uruguay. Why? Yeah, why? (laughs)
5: Um, I think after, I think on a personal note, after kind of, you know, living in Argentina, I first went into Uruguay in 2009, so it was right at the beginning, but every time I've just loved going back because when you live in the the madness and the chaos of Argentina, um, going to Uruguay is just kind of arriving to this little bubble of tranquility and, and (laughs) you know, very, the people of Uruguay are so laid back and so kind of humble and and you know and just just really lovely people to spend time with and it doesn't have that same kind of you know what i love about argentina too is the chaos but it it it's just like it's the yin to the yang of argentina so on a personal note i think that's why i've always loved uruguay um, and the in terms of wine uruguay is very interesting because you've got very distinctive families, and they're all typically very small producers and family producers. And so even though the climate is pretty much the same around most of the country, the soils are very diverse, um, which we can talk about if you want. But what me for me really makes the big difference in Uruguay is that each family has their own heritage, their own great varieties that they've brought from their ancestors, and their own style of making wine. So you can't talk too much about trends in the same way um because there aren't too many big companies making wine they are families and they stick to their family recipe like the Pisano brothers Danielle who's a real character he always says you know like this first of all this wine is Pisano and secondly it's Uruguay and secondly and then thirdly it's South America but first of all it's ours and like it's our family recipe and he's one of the few winemakers that will actually oh he's not a winemaker actually he's marketing which is probably why he says it, but he's one of the few people in wine that will actually talk about it as a recipe. And I really love that because I think, you know, mm. in the same way that you do pass on your, your family's ragu recipe for generations, their kind of approach to winemaking has been passed on through generations. And I think that's what makes Uruguay quite interesting to taste because they are all, you know, totally different and unique to the producer. And if you taste the wine sat next to the producer, you you can tell who's is who's. (laughs) The personality really comes through in the wines.
1: Are we tending to talk Tanat when we talk about uh, the wines of Uruguay?
5: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Tanat's the most planted um, and everyone will have a Tanat. Uh, I I can't think of any producer who doesn't have a Tanat in Uruguay, but everyone has something else too. I mean, you know, you look at Pablo Falabrino, who has, you know, his ancestors were from the Piedmont in Italy. And so he has... Arne and Nebbiolo. Um, you look at, uh, for example, um, Artizana, which is owned by an American as well. So they brought the first Zinfandel in. You know, you look at the Bausa family who have Galician roots. So they brought the first Albarino in. You know, everyone is always kind of looking into their heritage to bring in, use the unique varieties that their ancestors brought or, or bring in um, some old varieties now as a, as a new kind of homage to them so there's a huge diversity of wines in uruguay but everyone will have it a tanat for sure and sometimes they'll blend it with with different things too
1: and alberino can be fantastic in uruguay i had some uh, great examples of that and and uh, i share your enthusiasm i didn't spend long there but i thought montevideo was a a, a wonderful capital city to visit as well yeah
5: it's the most laid-back capital it's city fantastic in the world, and <laughs> well there as well
1: but let's talk about some of the other countries briefly that i know you're keen to touch on because you um you devote attention to them in the book and And most people don't devote that much attention to the wines of Brazil, Bolivia. I've never had one. And Peru. I have visited Peru. I love it. But I've never had a Peruvian wine either. So what should we be um, interested in in those three countries?
5: Yeah. So we'll start with Brazil, which actually were producing wine since the 1500s, but it wasn't very successful because it's quite a humid climate. And so it's only really in the 1800s that the kind of hardier Italian immigrants really, you know, managed to kind of figure out how to do viticulture in in a slightly more challenging climate. And so typically, you get a lot of Italian varieties actually in in Brazil. Um, And more recently, you get lots of the kind of bigger international varieties too. But I think for Me, the real highlight um, of Valle dos Viñedos or Seregaucha, which is the main wine region, is the sparkling wine. They have some excellent sparkling wine, and it's kind of, uh, you know, it's by no means compares to the cool climate Champagne or, or English sparkling. It's much more the style of kind of Carver. It's a much sunnier, um, softer wine, sparkling wines, but you know, you can have really nice complexity there too. Um, and typically, the traditional method ones are very good. Um, and then one area that I'm really excited about in Brazil is the Serra de Mantiqueira, which is a mountain chain outside of um, Sao Paulo and Minas Gerais, and, um, and Rio de Janeiro as well, actually, it, it touches all three. And there you've got some producers who have flipped the harvest on its head, so they're harvesting in July, which is obviously um, winter. In South America and so July is this amazing month in Brazil it's sunny it's cool in the evening and lovely in about 25 and sunny clear skies during the day um, and at this higher altitude so you get these wines with great kind of concentration but also some freshness and I'm really interested in some of the Syrah that you get from uh, the Serra mm-hmm. de Mantiquera. So Brazil is, Brazil is an absolute monster. I mean, it's huge, it's really unaccounted for and, and really hard to get your head around. It was an absolute nightmare trying to get statistics and, uh, and, and not easy in terms of the cartography either. Um, but it is a really interesting kind of country to delve into. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more from Brazil in the future. Um, mm. You know, They are getting more and more into drinking wine um, they're a huge market for South American wine, but I think also that will spur on a lot more uh, production of, of Brazilian wine too. Peru and Bolivia, there's a lot of similarities in some ways in terms of their kind of founding stories. I mean, Peru was the first wine producing country in South America. It was the seat of the vice royalty of Spain, which is why they you know, really developed their wine industry quite quickly. Um, and then, as I mentioned earlier, the Spanish crown kind of put a stop to it. Um, because they got jealous of the wine production, which is when Peru switched over to Pisco. So many of the wine grapes are still used for Pisco today. However, there are, you know, they're now, it's legal for them to make their own wine. And so there are um, plenty of wine producers and families that uh, are making their own wines. And what is interesting for me are those criolla varieties, um, the varieties that you would typically use for Pisco, but now they're making um, their own wines and often you know there's some really interesting orange wines and more kind of natural wines there um, not for the natural wine trend but just because they're kind of more artisanal in production um, and some people using the old botijas which are like the the kind of traditional amphora from the region that they always uh, shipped their wine and uh, pisco in so there's there's some interesting things happening in peru um, and then but it's mainly coastal so it's right most of the wine regions are right by the sea kind of sandy, um, and th- there's a lot of similarities for me to kind of Baja California, if you've ever been there, mm-hmm. and tasted the wines uh, from there. And then Bolivia really developed as a result of Potosi, the mine of Potosi, which Cerro Rico, which was one of the most important mines um, in the world, and that kind of a huge population developed there in the 15 and 1600s. Uh, I think it was the biggest capital outside of Paris, uh, outside of Europe, uh, out of that kind of dimension of population at the time um, and so the whole wine industry developed around there but you get some really distinctive wine regions in Bolivia. I'm a big fan of the Sinti Valley which is not too far from Potosi and it's an all-high altitude, very steep creek style valley and there you get loads of these old criollo vines and they're really quite magical to see because many of them um, are still cultivated in the traditional way that the jesuits planted them um you know 400 years ago so they're they're grown around trees which are their tutor. it's their you know they use the tree rather than poles to kind of to allow the grapevines to grow up and so you often get these really unique flavors because the trees are usually moye, which is pink peppercorn um, and so it gives you this quite distinctive wine and so like the muscat the alejandria from there is lovely because you've got this you know, old vine muscat, so it's got good concentration. It's got, you know, those kind of muscat aromas, but they're not too heady at that stage when it's when it's 200 years old, they typically are a bit more earthy, but with that faint kind of floral note, And then this hint of kind of pink peppercorn, which just makes them super interesting and distinctive. Um, But Terrique is the main wine region in Bolivia. And that's like, for me, very comparable to Salta, really. It's high altitude, high luminosity. And you get these wines where you get intense color, you get acidity, you get alcohol, you get, you know, you get a big wine naturally. And I think Bolivia now is, is getting kind of better at, at just kind of allowing, not over-oaking that. Because when you combine that with too much oak, <laughs> it's an enormous kind of wine it's to massive. chew. But when, you, yes. yeah, but when you kind of just let, let the fruit speak then you, you really get the kind of intensity of the place and you can really enjoy that, which is very similar to the wines that you get from Northern Argentina. They are intense and that they are, you know, really powerful and quite beautiful in their in their own personality.
1: Yeah, with that lovely freshness. My goodness me. Well, no wonder you're missing it uh, because <laughs> you've really inspired me and I'm sure you've inspired those uh, listening to, um, to visit... Uh, uh, the, these places in South America. You need to set up a wine bar in London, please, and have some of these wines, <laughs> these Bolivian wines and these Peruvian wines. But in the meantime, I mean, if, if anyone
5: t- wants, to, if anyone wants me to consult on that, I will happily do it. But I'm, well, I, I I would can, be terrible behind a bar I would I'm, I would be sat there chatting the whole
1: time. <laughs> <laughs> I can think of no one better to consult. But um, I know you do that anyway. But in the meantime, uh, I hope the book goes really well. It's fantastic to have a um, a reference tome uh, like this and i could talk to you uh, all day to be honest um so thank you very much indeed amanda for coming on the drinking hour
5: no thank you thank you for the opportunity to talk about south america and i hope that uh i hope that more people explore the wines of the regions because they are absolutely worth investing in and, and taking that time to to get to know
1: we shall do that amanda barnes the author of the wines of south america talking about her passion for that continent and from there to South Africa. Greg Sherwood is a master of wine and he's a specialist on the country from which he hails. I spoke to him about how he got into wine.
6: Well, I I was working um, with international investment and trade shows and that led to a move from Cape Town. I was actually working in Washington DC for a a year and a bit, moved back to South Africa, took up another position in Cape Town and um, while I was doing that, an opportunity which sounded too good to be true in Johannesburg came up as trading polyethylenes and petrochemicals, uh, when the oil price was about $24. So a little bit downstream, I wasn't trading oil per se, but, um, just slightly downstream. Um, interesting, uh, career, interesting job, uh, quite stressful. Um, between, you know, everything's on spot prices, this and that, and trying to get contracts signed with for big tenders and for big, uh, big corporates and um, very stressful. And I think just while I was doing that, um, I was introduced to a few people um, who were in the Cape Wine Academy, and um, they encouraged me to start going to some tastings and things, which I did. I did enjoy wine, my day. obviously had grown up around wine, but I, I had no academic, um, inclination around wine but um it seemed like a good escape after a long day of kind of work um, to just take your mind off kind of um yeah the stresses of of the day you know going to gym wasn't quite enough it's actually quite nice to just do something that's not so strenuous to to get rid of the stress and the uh, uh of the day so yeah started wine tasting that led to me enrolling in the what would be the preliminary of the cape wine academy which is a bit like W said now, it's a commencement of basically a three-year diploma degree. Um, And then it kind of carried on from there. And uh, after each year, I kind of, you can stop, but I carried on to the next and the next and the next. And my friendship group amongst wine professionals grew very quickly. Um, And then the next thing you know, kind of uh, three years down the road, I had finished my diploma. And I thought, well, I think there's maybe more fun to trade fine wine than to trade commodities um so i may yeah so i kind of uh, threw in the towel and um, went to go and be a best man at a friend's wedding down in the eastern cape um and then came back returned back to the uk in early 2000 uh, cool britannia things can only get better blair and spice girls and lastminute.com floats being 200 percent oversubscribed, you know it was real kind of uh dot com bubble kind of era and um, a lot of positivity around and that also translated into the wine industry and uh, I think there was a if I remember correctly I mean the MW was still almost you know impossible to get into uh, Deplo- W set was certainly ha- angling on really kind of thinking about how they were going to move closer to bridging the gap between the MW certainly in the UK um, around about then and um but the, the the trade was short of kind of really kind of skilled people who had a good business background but also had a good founding uh, founding knowledge in wine uh, a lot of people in the wine trade kind of fall into it from university or work at Oddbins or majestic or with a degree in english and this and that but you know i had a very good kind of commercial background which has stood me in good stead uh, over the years so that's uh, kind of how I fell into it and um, I've always had the passion for history, geography, travel um, you know and I love the social side of wine, meeting people, buying wine, selling wine so it's all just kind of the perfect kind of storm coming together and uh, the perfect job for me so unfortunately I didn't kind of quite realise this straight out of university
1: but um, these things come to you eventually I think. Well it was a mix of serendipity and your skill set kind of Combining along with your passion for wine too, so that that all makes sense. I mentioned that the wines of South Africa are very difficult to pigeonhole. Do you think that's a fair comment?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Um, sometimes people could see that as possibly a negative, depending if you know if it was another country and regions. Um, but I think one of South Africa's great strengths over the years has been its diversity and its almost kind of chameleon-like character within the trade. Uh, it's strength of white and red wines. Not you know, a lot of countries are much stronger on red or much stronger on whites. You know, it's probably only really kind of France that is just, you know, has incredible diversity of 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 all styles. Um, but we obviously always have looked up to France as a kind of, you know, the, the leader and, and and take a lot of lessons from their industries and regions. Um, but you know, we've 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 embraced regionality a long time ago. I mean, you'll remember Australia, I always mentioned, moved away from kind of brand Australia to brand regionality, and it got shot down within a very short period of time with the person running Wines of Australia losing their job. Um, their head was given to the big corporates uh, and they reverted back to kind of varietal brand kind of country marketing, which set back Australia for 10 years. We continued with real intricate regionality and expressing styles, and that's um, we made the USP of South Africa our diversity. And of course, you know nothing will succeed unless you have quality across those ranges and styles. So, um, I think that diversity and that difficulty in kind of, you know, pigeonholing us is is a real
1: strength. Yeah, I would agree with that absolutely. Uh, I, you mentioned your love of history, and uh, we tend to refer to countries like South Africa as New World, uh, somewhat laughably. Um, It's a proper misnomer when it comes to South Africa, isn't it?
6: Well, you know, it is, you know, it's such a kind of cliché. But, you know, we've just sold a a bottle of 1821 Grand Constance at auction a week or two ago for almost a million rand. So that's divide that by 20, you know, still quite a lot of pounds. Um, One of the high, I think it's the highest auction price for a single bottle. Um, 1821 sweet wine, you know. Constance has been making wine, you know, the, the cliche of when Bordeaux was still a swamp, you know, I, I love to roll that one out. Because, um, uh, you know, I, I, I studied at an American university in, in the States and in Holland, business and economics. Um, and, you know, the Dutch went to Bordeaux. You see all those lovely little canals. I lived in Holland for five years. Um, you see all those lovely canals in the Gironde kind of draining the fields and only when you know you off on promo when they had massive rains and you're driving past these flooded boggy fields do you realize you know that in the 18 you know 200 years ago that there was no hope in hell of growing uh, these quality grapes there unless they sorted out um, you know the kind of the, the, the canal systems and drainage there but uh, of course you know now Bordeaux is, is, is the greatest uh, terroir in the world for you know red wines and you um, um, but it is interesting to think back that, you know, Jan van Riebeek planted Groendreef, uh, probably or in, uh, in the 1650s, late 1650s. So um, there's a lot of history and um, while it, it might be a bit spurious to kind of refer to that with a direct link to our styles and quality, it, it's, a, it's a kind of psychological and uh, um, uh, confidence that is there that you can always fall back on. When people maybe ridicule your wines or your industry, you know we're not Johnny Come Latelys. You know we've we've been doing this for a while, but you know we're finally finding our feet. And you know we haven't you know, we haven't had 700 years like Burgundy, but hopefully you know another hundred years we will still all be.
1: South Africa will be making some incredible wines. I'm sure that's true. Its more recent history includes the apartheid era, of course, and the inequalities inflicted and the likes of international sanctions in response. How did all that impact the wine industry there? The sanctions and disinvestment and
6: isolation, you know, was a necessary um, uh, step to take to kind of, you know, move the political process. It had a massive effect certainly we were the industry was caught in a kind of time warp um there was no real travel and exchange of ideas and as you know in viticulture and winemaking it's it's kind of you know it's crucial especially with the kind of diversity that we have of grapes and styles and regions in south africa so that really kind of set the whole industry back and we were kind of stuck 20 30 years in kind of stasis and um um, but, you know, the, the the social side of it, you know, I think once the politics started to move in the right direction, there was also acknowledgement that certain changes need to come in kind of welfare and uh, uh, law pr- uh, working practices for workers and um, um, farm workers and, and property rights and things like that. And um, which it comes to kind of back to, you know, just the current, you know, situation where uh, it, it's very difficult. But I think a lot of the... The, the 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 kind of isolation you know did set our industry back but we knew once we got back off post 90 kind of era that we had a lot of catching up to do and um the south african white you know industry was up to the task and people travelled incredibly quickly and broadly and um fortunately we we got up to speed but um I suppose there is still issues of kind of a slightly unhealthy relationship in the general population with alcohol p- generally not necessarily wine per se but uh, which is probably something that has needs addressing but obviously of course wine and uh, the higher brow end of it gets affected when um, when any kind of policies are taken by governments yeah and
1: more recently the wine industry has been rather hammered by Um, a series of disasters, severe droughts, water shortages, and then this ban on alcohol sales, which, as you mentioned, might have been a necessary measure, but rather uh, unfairly impacted wine. Um, What uh, have you witnessed in terms of impact?
6: I mean, it's been, obviously, the pandemic has has killed tourism, you know, with a hammer blow, but that's been the case in many countries around the world. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of for the wine industry in south africa there's a lot of producers who have been really kind of home market centric and focused on making good wines that are well known and well received within the home market and are on almost every wine list and every restaurant and you know when you kind of shut off travel and tourism and and then even kind of going out for local you know you know there's curfews still you know it really kind of to hammer blow for a lot of producers who are not kind of Just kind of allocating and sending their wine to the uk or the us or to japan you know so that's led to a lot of businesses coming under wine business a lot of stress it's led to a lot of restaurant on trade closures um massive um, loss of employment for a lot of farm workers there's been kind of steps trying to take into mitigate so you know that workers aren't necessarily they're not kicked off farms and that because they are some workers' rights and things. But still, you know, if, you, if you're sitting at home and you've got no job and you can't feed your family, it's, it's really tricky. And if the person who employs you is literally in debt and going to the wall, it, it, it's very difficult for everyone to see light. Um, but, you know, people are soldiered on. And the, the great problem is, is is all kind of last remnants of profitability are being ripped out of the industry. And, and that totally removes any possibility of, of, of investment for the future. And, and who knows what um, problems that'll you know, store up for uh, the industry going ahead. But it, it, it's been very difficult. You know, I, I'm fortunate that I work more in the fine wine end of the trade. So the people I work with, the growers, while well, logistically it's been difficult to get their wines to port and to get containers and to export um, with global shortages of just a general logistics nightmare Um, You know, they are still making great wine and selling most of their wines and um, kind of carrying on. But there is a massive segment of the industry, more mass market, main market, that um, are certainly kind of buckling under the pressures. And I think that won't go away until we really get back to normal and see a kind of real flow of, you know, tourism back into the country and uh, international travel.
1: Greg Sherwood, MW, talking South Africa. Now, Vermouth might feel like it's the height of fashion at the moment, courtesy of the cocktail boom, but it has a rich and fascinating history, as we discovered in an edition of The Drinking Hour devoted to Vermouth, with kind of Vermouth royalty really, Roberto Bava, the managing director of Cocky, a brand celebrated by bartenders and mixologists the world over. He's president of the Consorzio Vermouth de Torino, And I also spoke with him to John Lister of Speciality Brands, very much a Vermouth expert, as you'll hear. And we began with a definition from Roberto.
7: Vermouth uh, is the most famous Italian aperitivo, of course. Uh, It's defined as uh, an aromatized wine made with 75% of wine by law. It needs to be added with sugar, some alcohol. The extract of several botanical, which are according to the recipe, can change a lot, but being wormwood, the essential one to define the category. So Vermouth is because of wine and because of Warmwood, plus the extra secret, maybe recipe uh, of the producer.
1: And we should introduce Cocky as well, because it is very much a, a reference point uh, for uh, vermouth. Uh, I have a favourite bar in Rome that I go to, and uh, Salvatore, the mixologist behind the bar, always makes his Negroni uh, with uh, Cocky Vermouth. Um, tell us a little bit about um, the brand.
7: Well, it's it's a simple story, but very old. Uh, Giulio Cocchi himself was a barman who decided to move from Florence to Torino. Uh, to produce his own ver- uh, vermouth and aperitivi. This was exactly 130 years ago. He he was creative, uh, he invented uh, several aromatized wines, uh, sparkling wine, and uh, and after 130 years, we still produce uh, that recipe, which proved to be quite modern uh, still today. And Cocky and today is one of the, I would say, driving force uh, behind the Vermouth and Vermouth di Torino renaissance uh, of last decade. And in some way, leading the trends, uh, but also working uh, in, in a group with all our colleagues producer. Um, Kokki happened to be, uh, uh, I'm going to say, the right uh, product and, and, and producer where the old cocktail uh, Rinascimento came out. So we were authentic. We uh, we were natural, um, we were vintage uh, because there's a kind of uh, taste for the design of uh, that years, and uh, and we were uh, family owned but quite well organized to ship all over. Uh, being a wine producer uh, as a family, so all these ingredients made uh, made of corky a uh, kind of uh, uh, important ingredients for the environment uh, in, in the continents. And, and actually, we are very happy about this. We are very surprised because, uh, don't give it for granted that uh, Vermouth had to come back, but uh, it's happening and we are very happy. Yes, it's
1: certainly happening. And uh, John, no doubt, will tell us more about that um, uh, a little bit later when we talk about the astonishing uh, success of cocktails and of uh, vermouth. But um, John, you're a, a sort of vermouth a fiend, really, a real expert in the category. So tell us about the different styles of vermouth and how we might might encounter them.
0: Vermouth specifically, you need to probably refer to the old kingdom or principality of Savoy, where this bordered the French Alps all the way down to Sardinia. Um, And throughout these areas, you encountered um, different styles of wine and vermouths leading from um, probably the most two famous areas, both being capitals at one point, and that is Chambry and Torino. And within these areas, you would have what we now refer to uh, as French and Italian. And within these, you have different grape varietals, um, a different botanical makeup, But most importantly, you have categories from extra dry to sweet. And within these, you then, as you've uh, uh, mentioned, uh, cocktail uses, um, but also a very different delivery of flavor um, uh, and a beautiful array of uh, flavor categories. But without vermouth labeling, there are a multitude of different uh, fortified and aromatized wines that we can um, uh, dip into maybe at a later date as well
1: <laughs> i'm gonna say it's a yes it's a, a world to explore that that's for sure um as i understand it the the etymology of vermouth is from the german word uh, for wormwood vermouth. so uh, roberto um tell us what for those who don't know what wormwood is and why it's so important
7: <laughs> Um, yeah, first of all, you're right. The first time we, we read the Vermouth vine is in the book of the 15th century by Arnaldo de Villanova, and there herb was, was called it in German uh, in the medieval pharmacopeia books at that time. But we also have the Latin name Artemisia Absinthium. In the northern hemisphere, uh, there are 200 varietals uh, of it, so it's quite a General bitter herbs, uh, like half a meter high and, and seasonal. Um, but uh, two or three types are uh, only are the ones that are used to produce wormwood, uh, to vermuts. And, and this is the grand wormwood. Uh, in Latin is Artemisia Absintium, the Roman wormwood, which is Artemisia pontica. And the third one, and the third one is used historically to produce uh, the Gene um, So actually these two are the ones. And it happened that uh, Piemonte, the foot of the Alps, uh, is really the place where it, it sounds to be uh, the, the best one. Uh, uh, actually, it also produces less alkaloids, so it's quite uh, uh, healthy to to, uh, to uh, uh, the use for, for uh, drinking. Um, so this is also why Piemonte Is the place for for warm blood historically. So Artemisia uh, is the ingredient. Uh, And it happened that Piemonte is good for for some specific product like grapes, and we have the wine, hazelnut, and we have the chocolate, etc. So Artemisia is one of these uh, incredible products that, for some reason, in Piemonte are perfect uh, to, to grow yes and that gives us a sense of why it was uh, once an
1: elixir as well um, john wormwood is an odd name in english conjures up an image of one of our most famous notorious jails wormwood scrubs took me a while to realize <laughs> why that was so named actually so just tell us about wormwood and its
0: importance as your introduction um alluded to it, Wormwood has been um, used for medicinal properties for um, thousands of years, um, not just in aromatized wines, but as a Brit uh, with these gentlemen Italians here, we've actually, as well as hops, we used to brew um, Wormwood into our beers. So, you know, within the Mediterranean and Europe, it, it has been a ridiculously prolific uh, botanical that has been, you know, invaluable to, to our, our growth uh, um, as as imbibers but I think the importance of wormwood to us could be summarized as if if you were to produce a gin could you regard it a gin without juniper and I would say that would be the same as with vermouth; mm. it is integral Um, to its um, flavour journey, as is the people, as is the grape, uh, as is is its geography. So, you know, it's very, very integral to its journey. The Drinking Hour on Food FM.
1: John Lister of Speciality Brands and Roberto Bava, MD of Coqui and President of the Consortio Vermouth di Torino, Concluding our highlights of series three. Hope you enjoyed those. Thank you for listening. Series four begins next week with episode 37. So until next time, thanks for listening to The Drinking Hour and goodbye. The Drinking Hour on Food FM. You're listening to The Drinking Hour with David Kermode, in association with the International Wine and Spirit Competition, using the best in the world to judge the best in the world.